Ahab, the narcissist. And we saw that he was self-centered in an excessive way. We consider ways that his narcissism, a word that's used today to describe pathological self-centeredness. We looked at that. And drew some conclusions concerning some of our own struggles with self-centeredness. Now, this morning we look at <clears throat> the faithful prophet and a sovereign God. The faithful prophet. We'll center our attention on 1 Kings 22, <clears throat> verse 14. As we just read, now Micaiah comes on the scene. Ahab, although reluctant, perhaps gives in to Jehoshaphat's request, is there not another prophet that we may inquire? Perhaps Ahab does not want to do anything to disrupt his alliance and Jehoshaphat going to war with him. So he says, yes, there's one more, but I hate him. He never speaks good concerning me, but only evil. He sends the messenger. The messenger tells him what has just happened with the 400 prophets. And then Micaiah in verse 14 responds. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. The expression, the Lord liveth, is an expression that emphasizes the certainty of something. Just as sure as God has always lived, just as sure as He's alive at this moment, just as sure as when I wake up tomorrow, He will be the living God, that's just how sure I am about what I'm going to say, according to Micaiah. And what is that? Whatever the Lord says, that's exactly what I'm going to speak. So you see in this, Micaiah's resolve, his unhesitating determination, his consistency, his steadfastness, his reliability, all those words are expressions that speak of faithfulness. Micaiah is a faithful prophet, notwithstanding all the circumstances that he is up against in this scene. So to begin with, we'll look at three ways in which his faithfulness expresses itself, how we can see it. And the first one, which should be noted, which is rather interesting, is that his faithfulness is recognized by an ungodly king. So here's what Micaiah says in verse 14 or 15. So he came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah says, Go and prosper. And the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now, Micaiah's response can be seen in three, word, uh, three ways. First, sarcasm. He's being sarcastic. Secondly, Micaiah will give a summary of what the Lord said. You're like a shepherd. And when you go into the battle, the sheep under your shepherding are going to be scattered because you're going to die. Then thirdly, Micaiah opens up a window into heaven that gives the details as to how this came about concerning the lives of 400 men. So in this first occasion, Micaiah uses sarcasm. Now there are a few conclusions we can draw from what Ahab says in response to sarcasm. One is that he's done this before. Verse 16, 
And the king said unto him, How many times do I adjure thee? Which means it seems that Micaiah has resorted to sarcasm in however many times he's come before the king that landed him in prison. So he's using sarcasm. And so King Ahab recognizes that. Furthermore, King Ahab's response indicates the faithfulness of the prophet. This would make no sense if Micaiah was anything other than faithful. Because he says, how many times do I adjure you that you tell me what is true concerning what God has said? Now, he didn't say that to the false prophets. And if Micaiah had not always said what the Lord said, would Ahab had said about him, he always prophesies that which is evil concerning me and never prophesies that which is good. Now, he didn't say that about the 400. In other words, his wording goes something like this. Now, come on, Micaiah, quit joking around with me. Quit poking fun and teasing me. I know that you've always told me exactly what God says. I know that you're not like the 400 prophets that sit at my table who are on my payroll. I know that you're a faithful man. I know that you always tell me exactly what God says. I know this. Therefore, quit playing around with me. Tell me what God said. That could only make sense if Micaiah had demonstrated and proven he's a consistent, faithful steadfast prophet of the Lord. Now, beloved, would anybody know you as a faithful Christian? Suppose the Lord had a list of this membership, and of course He does, and He went through the list of the names here, and your name is on the list, of course, and He began to pose the question, I wonder who will participate. I wonder who will be present. I wonder who will be there. I wonder who will serve in this particular occasion. And he goes to the list and he gets to your name. Would that be a check mark, a maybe, or an X? No, he won't show up. No, she won't do that. No, they won't be there. An ungodly king knew by the character of of Micaiah, he would show up, he would be there, he would say that, he would do that. And the words of the ungodly king, a man of the world, witnessed to the faithfulness of a prophet. Beloved, you're going to get the opportunity to give witness to just that thing, perhaps, in our culture. Will we be faithful, not just in word, but in deed? In truth. Well, let's consider what it was in this context that made Micaiah a man that was faithful, a man that was ready to, to risk. There, there were consequences that he experienced. There were difficulties that he encountered just because he did one thing alone. He simply said exactly what God told him to say. That's what it means to be a faithful prophet. And in many ways, that's what it means to be a faithful Christian. We're just going to follow and we're going to set our course according to what God says. And we want to say what He says in the right context. And we want to be what He says to be. There are any number of prophet-like people today that will not say what the Lord says because they want to prophesy 
that which people want to hear. We live in a culture, again, of narcissism where what rules as king is a person's individual feelings, what they think, what they want, what they desire, and they're demanding that people submit to whatever they want, just like a king Ahab. This was a prophet in Israel. Uh, this was a problem in Israel. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. The prophets prophesy lies, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. So, what was ruling the prophets and ruling the priests was what the people love, what they think is good, what they want, what was right in their own eyes. And so the prophets understood what they wanted, and the priest understood that. So the prophets gave them a lie and told them exactly what they wanted to hear, what would make them feel good. And then the priest took and bore rule by their means. And God says, what will you do in the end thereof? Which means if that course is continued to follow, what will a culture do in the end thereof? What will this culture do in the end where it's going? the extremities in which this culture is moving, all because the people love to have it so. And sadly, we'll see churches capitulating to what men want, want to hear. So what we need is faithfulness. What God calls us to be is faithful. You can see an occasion of this that we heard in Psalm 26 in the reading of Scripture this morning, where David says, judge me, O God. Now the word judge means to vindicate or to set in the clear. If you read that psalm, there are evildoers that are condemning David publicly and accusing him falsely. So David comes before the Lord and says, Lord, set me in the clear. Make it clear to all. Vindicate me. On what basis? For I have walked in mine integrity, I have also trusted in the Lord, I shall not slide, totter, waver, or be unfaithful. To walk in integrity means wholeness or to be undivided. It simply means David is all there. He is all completely there. And he walks consistently, steadfastly, or faithfully in his integrity. He's a whole person before God. So he's not moving. He's not sliding. He's steadfast. Then he makes the appeal on the basis of this integrity, which means a, a wholeness, both inside and out, and, that, and that's what he expresses. Inwardly, what does he say? Examine me, O Lord. Prove me and test my reins and my heart. Just his inner person. David is not saying, Lord, if you can find a sin there, I want to challenge you to find it. He's saying, regarding the condemnation that they're talking to me about, search me, examine me, and see that I'm whole before you. David knew his thoughts about God, that he trusted Him and he loved God. He wasn't saying, you'll, you'll never find a wrong thought in me. He's saying, regarding what they are condemning me for, set me in the clear, Lord, examine my heart. You know my thoughts towards you, what I think about you, how I love you. And then he works it to the outside, because what we are inside expresses it on the outside. So he says this in the next verse. 
For your loving kindness has been before mine eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Now the word truth is amet, which can also be translated firmness, faithfulness. I have consistently, steadfastly walked faithfully. But did you notice he didn't say my faithfulness? I've walked in your truth, your firmness, your faithfulness to me. The only way Micaiah can be faithful in a context where fear is all around him and the threat of his own safety in life is that he's faithful because he's relying upon the faithfulness of God to him. And therefore he can continue to walk in a faithful way before God. Why? According to David. Your loving kindness has been before my eyes. So he walks in faithfulness. Loving kindness is that word hesed, which can mean his mercy, his goodness, or his steadfast love. God's love for you is a faithful love. Will you be faithful on the basis of His love for you? Will you be empowered to walk in integrity and faithfulness? How? Because His steadfast love for you is the key. David says, it's been before mine eyes. Micaiah has something before his eyes, and it's not the king, and it's not the 400 prophets. It's the faithfulness of a steadfast love of God for him. Therefore, he doesn't move, David says, right? Why are you not sliding, David? Because of God's loving kindness before mine eyes. Now, what would David's experience be of God's loving kindness being before him? It would express itself in faithfulness, like Micaiah. But what would his inward experience be? Well, he would tell us in Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. What happens if you find something that's better about your life than God's loving kindness? You won't be faithful. You'll totter. You'll move. You'll slide back. Because your life is better than God's loving kindness. See? Micaiah, don't you have a better life to live than prison time? Just agree with the 400 and it's over. Don't you have something you'd write? Don't you have a family to be with? The loving kindness of God must be better than our life. If not, your life will be your focus and not His loving kindness. And you will slide. Thus I will lift up my hands and bless you. I will lift up my hands in your name. That's back in Psalm 63. His loving kindness is better life, therefore His lips shall praise God. He will bless the name of God. He will lift up His hands in the name of God. And now here comes a parallel to verse 3. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Now look at the parallelism. He mentioned the lips twice, right, as the second part of the phrase. My lips shall praise thee, my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. There's the parallel. But look at the first part of the two phrases. Because your loving kindness is better than life, 
my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. The loving kindness of God that David had before his eyes. God's faithful love to David that produced faithfulness and a consistent walk was the experience of his soul being satisfied with the God of heaven. If not, if that's not what we're pressing to, and seeking God to experience, then I'm going to be satisfied with my own life, which means I won't show up, I won't participate, I can't be counted on, I won't be reliable, I won't be there. Because I've got life to live that's better than being here or anywhere else God may want me to be. Micaiah is stable, steadfast, constant, Firm, unflinching, unwavering, not sliding. Because he has something before his eyes that makes him stable. It's the proven faithfulness of God that proved itself in the faithfulness of the prophet. And so what does he do? As the Lord lives, messenger, I will only speak what the Lord has spoken to me. Are you faithful? Would the world see you as faithful? Would you see one another as faithful? Can you be counted on? Are you reliable? Well, that will speak something about where my eyes are focused, whether on the loving kindness of God or more on my life and how I want to live it. Number two, about his faithfulness, it is seen in his fear. Now, get the scene here. In verse 10, we're told that Jehoshaphat and Ahab are sitting each on his throne. Now, that must mean that Ahab had a throne built for Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah, not Israel. And they're in Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern ten tribes. So he has his own throne there. That's kind of of an alliance they had at the time. So they both are sitting on a throne. And in ancient kingdoms, a throne always symbolized power, authority, royalty, majesty, wealth. And often the throne was built and designed to display all that. Now, it doesn't tell us anything else except there is a throne. It's in a a void in the place of the uh, entrance of the gate of Samaria, uh, uh, probably an empty space somewhere. Usually it's higher up. We don't know that for sure. We just know it's a throne. And a throne means to capture the idea of authority and power. Much like the bench of a judge when they say, All rise. And he ascends the bench as a symbol of respect for the authority of his position and the law that he's going to judge. And unless you're a lawyer and you've been in that scene multiple times, you go in that scene one time and see if your knees don't tremble just a bit, especially if judgment is going to be made concerning you. Powerful scene. Not just one king, two he's going to appear for. Secondly, the 400 prophets have all gotten together and Zedekiah has built some horns at a previous time. Maybe he puts them on his head. Maybe he runs around like a bull. But he uses this pageantry, this sort of play before the two kings to say, the Lord is going to grant you victory over the Syrians. And like these horns, he's going to gore the Syrians until they're consumed. And all the prophets in unison say, that's right. Go up to Ramoth Gilead and it's yours. Furthermore, a messenger just tells Micaiah everything that transpired concerning the 400 prophets and says, I recommend you probably ought to go along with it. 
And he walks right in the middle of that scene. This is a time of great potential fear. What fears could Micaiah be confronted with? Now, I recognize it doesn't say he was afraid. We're just taking normal human experience. If you came before two kings and you know you're about to say something that's going to displease one, the other one who loves God at the moment doesn't really care. He doesn't heed what uh, Micaiah says. Nobody listens to Micaiah, including Jehoshaphat. And 400 of his prophets have just said, go, and you're going to oppose that. That's a time of fear. There are three fears that we can experience related to men. One is the fear of what man can do to us, right? Micaiah knows that Jezebel has cut off the prophets. She's killed some. Some were in hiding in 1 Kings 18. He's been in prison. He knows he has the power of execution. So the fear of man is a potential here concerning one's own safety, health, and life. Secondly, the fear of rejection. Probably even a stronger fear than death itself. To be rejected and embarrassed and shamed before your peers and colleagues. Some people have taken their own lives because of the shame of rejection was so powerful. Men have the power to shame you and to reject you. And you don't get the approval that we like. The approval of man can be so powerful that it can move us to capitulate and to conform. And then the fear of losing something, the fear of loss, like freedom, which presumably he's already lost. At the end of this verses, Ahab says, take him back and put him in prison, which assumes that he was there. Freedom, livelihood, possessions, the fear of loss. Man can do all that. Right? How can we be faithful in a culture where that growing concern is rising at a rapid pace? Your livelihood could be taken away in certain parts of our country for just using a gender pronoun. It's happened. I read it regularly. Do you have a guarantee that it won't move into this culture or in this state somewhere in the future? You have none. How can we be faithful when we all understand our potential to fear man in some way? Well, I'll give you one particular case where Jesus is strengthening His apostles in Matthew 10 against the fear of man. He tells them, you are going to come before kings like Micaiah did. Governors, magistrates, and councils. Not just one time, but this would be a an ongoing experience for the apostles. We see that played out in the book of Acts. And when you come, they're going to betray you. They're going to scourge you in their synagogues, which happened. And Jesus begins to unfold in Matthew 10 all of the potential harm that was going to face them. And, in fact, some of it came to pass. Or what He said came to pass, actually we know came to pass. Then He speaks these words. Fear them not, 
For fear not them that are able to kill the body, and there's no more that they can do. Here's the transition. He tells them about all the things that men can do to them and that men will do, and he knows they're threatened with fear. The fear of harm, the fear of bodily damage or danger, the fear of losing something, the fear of rejection, the fear of disapproval, all which happened to the apostles. So Jesus is going to give us two ways in which we are to fear something other than man. And incidentally, in 1 Kings 22, in verse 19, when Micaiah opens up the vision of heaven, what does he say? I saw the Lord sitting on His throne. Here are these two powerful kings sitting on thrones, but he saw the Lord sitting on His throne. When we see the Lord sitting on His throne through Scripture, And what the Bible tells us about God, we cannot fear or we can battle our fears, right? So this is what Jesus says. Fear not them that are able to kill the body and there's no more they can do to you. But fear Him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. How does that help? Is Jesus saying, listen apostles, you need to be really afraid that God could change His mind, God could throw you into hell? No. What He's saying is the enemies that are persecuting you, that are scourging you. What He's saying, Micaiah, the 400 prophets are going to be destroyed both soul and body in hell. If you capitulate and throw your lot in with them and you join them and you stay in that group, if God is going to throw that group in hell, what does that mean for you? Well, it wouldn't mean anything different. Because the righteous shall hold on their way and persevere by faith. So He's giving them a warning to help them not capitulate and join the enemy. Just join them, like many Jewish people did when Jesus was there. They joined the enemy, and they stayed with them. Should we expect anything other than the broad road that leads to destruction? If we get on the broad road, love the broad road, and stay there, because everybody on that road that lives and loves there will be destroyed. Do you see how the warnings of God are designed to help His people? No, they were not to be afraid that God was going to do it to them. He was going to help them stay safely under the rule of God, seeing God sitting sitting on His throne like you just say. You said, behold our God seated on His throne. That's going to help you not capitulate in the worst of times. But that's not enough and Jesus knows that. So here's the second thing he says that's supposed to be coupled with that. God is able, God is going to throw His enemies and our enemies who do not turn and trust Jesus, He's going to eternally destroy them forever. Here's the second view Jesus wants us to have that's going to help us keep God big and man small and little like He is. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And not one of them shall fall to the ground without your father. 
but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Don't be afraid. You're of more value than many sparrows. So the fear of the Lord is seeing God and His power to destroy, while at the same time seeing God's meticulous care. Meticulous means giving great attention to detail. Precise care. Such attention that not a single insignificant cheap sparrow falls to the ground without the will of the Father. Not one. I don't care about sparrows. I'm not a bird watcher. I don't care. I don't even notice those birds unless they're troublesome or unless one hits the grill of my car. And I wince for a minute and I go right on with not a care about that sparrow, but not your father. He gives meticulous care to all of creation, right down to something so insignificant that you can buy one, get one free. Recently, I was walking in a parking lot of a grocery store, and I looked down and saw a penny. When I was six years old, I would have picked it up. At 59, here's what goes through my head. If I bend down, my knees are kind of creaky. It's going to take a lot of energy to stand back up. Furthermore, I may lose my balance and just fall right there. Thirdly, that penny is insignificant and really worth nothing to me. I'll let the six-year-old boy behind me pick it up. But not Jesus. Isaiah 42 depicts Jesus as not bruising the broken reed or quenching. The smoking flax, the burning ember. He will get down on his knee for one single burning ember which reflects his people and he will care for it and he will fan it and he will stand up the broken reed. If there's just one stalk beside a lake, he will go to great lengths to get to that one bruised reed and stand it up again. Because you're not insignificant to Jesus Christ. Because you belong to Him. You've been blood-bought. And the hairs of your head. Nobody cares about a singular hair that falls during the day. You don't even know it. Unless it ends up in your soup. Then you discuss whose hair it was in the family that got into your soup. Otherwise, you don't care. You don't even know it. But God does. He gives meticulous care for you. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows because your value is not intrinsic. He's assigned value to you because you belong to Him. You wear His name on your jersey. You have His blood covering your soul. So, To fear God over man, we have to have both in view. Just to fear God's power means what? What will we say to Jesus when He comes? I knew you were an austere man, so I hid your talent in the earth. You wicked servant. That's not good. If we just have the meticulous care side, we're careless. We say, Well, it doesn't matter if I walk on the broad road or whatever. It just doesn't matter. It does. We have both in view. We see His eternal power, 
his destructive power and know our enemies will be cast away. I, I don't want to be his enemy. How do I stay in God's safe backyard? He's caring for me with a great detail and concern. So if Micaiah can keep in his vision the Lord that's sitting on the throne, he sees that throne above the two earthly thrones which are small and insignificant compared to God. And he knows the the God that sits on that throne loves me. And even in this great time of fear, he is caring for me in a meticulous way. Not even a hair of your head will perish, Jesus told the apostles. Which means what? Nobody does nothing to you unless I will it. That can help make us faithful. That can help us face all of our fears of men. All of the fears of poor health or bodily harm, which are real fears that we all struggle with, by resting in the one that sits on the throne. His name is Jehovah God. And then finally, we see His faithfulness in suffering. After the prophecies revealed, go back, put Him in prison, give Him the bread of affliction and the water of affliction, which likely means give Him the worst in prison. If He was eating the prison fare, now He's getting the moldy bad stuff. And do that until I come in peace. Now why did He say do that until I come in peace? Because Ahab was likely going to execute him. But he didn't come back in peace. Beloved, when we can remember the example of the prophets according to James 5.10, it's going to help us in time of suffering. Whatever it is, reviling, Jesus calls persecution, reviling and saying all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. That's persecution. We often reserve it to the ultimate death, which is probably not likely for us. No, when you're reviled, and when all manner of evil, all kinds of evil are spoken against you falsely, for His sake, you have been persecuted. And so James says, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Now why did they suffer? They spoke in the name of the Lord. What is the number one cause that will likely be for any kind of suffering you have, reviling reproach, you will speak in the name of the Lord. That's it. Speak in the name of the Lord in this society. And that will be the cause of reviling, hatred, and speaking reproachful things about you. That's persecution. That's all Micaiah did. I'm just going to tell you what God said. Now, what is the example of suffering affliction? It's endurance and faithfulness in the affliction. And so James says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Happy. Blessed. Where is Micaiah right now? Where is the faithful prophet? He's with King Jesus. Why? He endured. Why did he endure? Because Christ the King was faithful to keep him going as he trusted in him. We count them happy 
which endure. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, temptation. For when he is tried, which means after he's tried, he will receive the crown of life, which God hath promised to them that are loving him. The incentive that Micah or Micaiah holds before us, or in James, in talking about these prophets like Micaiah, is that the crown of life awaits us. So endurance is keeping the crown of life before us that produces the faithfulness unto the end. Because Jesus promised us something. And so when we keep that joy set before us, what do we do? We endure crosses. And we despise the shame, just like Jesus' example in Hebrews chapter 12. So Micaiah shows us a faithfulness that's even recognized by ungodly people, a faithfulness that has the fear of the Lord and God's loving kindness in his eyes that produces it, and a fear or a faithfulness in the fear of the Lord that produces endurance even when he is suffering for it. Now lastly, let's conclude with a sovereign God. So we look at this window opened up in heaven in verse 19, and Micaiah tells us, he tells Ahab what happened in heaven that resulted in the lies of the prophet. So verse 20, the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab, which means who shall deceive him, that he may go up and die at Ramoth Gilead? Some said this, some said another thing, but a spirit came and said, I'll persuade him. God says, how are you going to do that? He says, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Now here's a statement of sovereignty in verse 22. You shall go, you shall persuade, you shall prevail. That's not uncertain, brother. Prevail means you will be the victor. It will happen. That is a statement of God's supreme rule over the situation. It is going to happen, and it did so. It did so, just as God said it would. Now, verse 23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets. Now here's the question. If God put the lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets, is God a liar? I do not say that in a blasphemous way. That's what some people either will conclude or they'll say, therefore God is not sovereign because we can't conclude that. And certainly we cannot. Titus 1 tells us, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. So we can, we can get that off the table. But how is it, and in what sense did God put the lying spirit in their mouth that He's not the one responsible for it, He's not doing the lying? Let's look at a few facts here. Number one, The prophecy is exposing the lies of the prophets. How's that deception? The very prophecy is telling Ahab, listen, your 400 guys, they're lying to you. How's that deception? That doesn't even fit the definition of deception. Deception means you say something false to get somebody to do something that they don't know about. Ahab knows they're lying. Why? God told him. How does that make God... The deceiver here. They know God is denouncing them because Zedekiah goes up and smites Micaiah right on the cheek. He's mad because he knows what Micaiah is saying. You're saying we're liars. 
That's exactly right. That's not deception. Number two, God is graciously warning Ahab. Ahab, you go into battle, you're going to die. How's that deception? He tells him before it happens. The shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will scatter. And that's what happened. How is that deception? It's not. God exposes the lies. He even tells Ahab what's going to happen and warns him. And even Micaiah says in verse 28, Listen, O people, every one of you, take heed to what I'm saying. How is that lying? Ahab is just as free to heed the warning as his corrupt nature will allow. And it will not allow him to move into the light because your will and your choices are dictated by your nature. And the Bible makes that clear. So Ahab is a responsible agent acting according to the dictates of his own nature and his fallenness. And God was above board open in telling him, they're lying, here's a warning, but he would not have it. Jeremiah 6.10 To whom shall I speak and give warning, saith the Lord? Their ear is uncircumcised, they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is a reproach unto them, they have no delight in it. Ahab has no delight in the word of the Lord, none whatsoever. He has an uncircumcised ear, so everything that comes out of his heart, his will, is free to act in complete and utter darkness. What can explain the madness of the prophet? He knows Micaiah always tells him the truth. He tells him the truth, and yet he goes right into battle like a rebellious, fallen creature that he is. No, God's not the source of the deception. He's being really above board with Ahab. Well, what sense then did God put the lying spirit? God is a sovereign God and nothing escapes His sovereignty. Not even lying spirits and devils. No one, no event, no thing, no matter how small or great, escapes the operation of the supremacy of your sovereign God. That is going to help you be faithful. Without it, you're not going to be faithful. Now look at the parallels here with Job. In verse 19 of 1 Kings 22, God was sitting on the throne, all the hosts of heaven standing by Him on the right hand on the left. That's angels. Job 1.6, there was a day when the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord and the devil came with them. First Kings, God posed the question, who will go and persuade Ahab? Job 1, God posed the question, have you considered my servant Job? You see the parallels? It was God's idea. Are you going to charge him with wrong? It was God's suggestion. Suppose you're the person. And your name is in the blank. Have you considered my servant? You know that, that brother or sister at Heritage? Have you ever considered... Afflicting them? Yeah. You know, you've got this hedge around heritage I've been trying to get in. It's okay. Walls are down. Go have them. 1 Kings 22, 
The spirit must have permission to go. Job 1, the devil must have divine permission or he cannot touch you. And God says, you can go. That is supreme, sovereign rule. And that's the God we serve. Take that away. I know this is a strong statement, but listen, you take that away, you take away Christianity. That's how prevalent God expresses Himself in the Word about Himself. You take away your, 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 your net, your platform, you take away your faithfulness. Because you're, you're trying to create hope. You're trying to create some hope out of this tragic, difficult evil that touched your life. And how are you going to do it? Say, well, God was nowhere to be found. There are any number of people that want to tell you that. And you know what that happens? They slide. And you and I will slide too as soon as we take that view on. What distinguishes? In what way did God put a lying spirit there? God planned it. God permitted it, and God purposed it for an end that will magnify His glory in one of two ways. Now, if you were at the Bible study, you're going to remember these two ways. In Job, it was to magnify His mercy. I know that from Job, uh, James 5.11. You've heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the end of the Lord, the goal of God, that He's very pitiful and of tender mercy. The manifestation of His glory called mercy is the aim of the sovereign permission of the devil in afflicting Job terribly. What's the aim in Ahab? The manifestation of the glory of His justice. And what did He tell Ahab in chapter 21? Where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, they're going to lick your blood. Justice was served in a temporary way. Because full justice does not come until eternity. So God has put on display His justice and His mercy. And that's radically God-centered and radically different than the purpose of the lying spirit and the purpose of the devil. What's the purpose of a lying spirit? Lies. That's what He's about. What's the purpose of a devil? To afflict people so they curse God to His face and they depart from the living God. What's the purpose of God in Job? Mercy, magnified. What's the purpose of the lying spirit? Justice, satisfied. And that is the definition of when God is right. Just mark it down. We've talked about this several times. When God is acting rightly, He's not acting and conforming Himself to what you want Him to be. He's not acting according to some law book. He's acting according to the dictates of His nature. And He does everything, everything for the manifestation of His glory in mercy or in justice. So God is exonerated. God is vindicated. God is cleared. And He put the lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets by an act of sovereign, divine permission that he purposed and planned it for the glory of his justice. And what happened? Ahab dies and the dogs lick his blood. He gets exactly what he deserved. Why? Because he acted in the freedom of his own nature. And freedom means nobody forced him to do it. Nobody drug him on that battlefield. Nobody made him go into that chariot. He did it freely according to his nature. So God is sovereign. And you're responsible.
And that's the answer to this unusual prophecy about how the prophets lied. And and are the prophets responsible? Yes, they did the lying. But they were enticed by a lying, wicked spirit. And God got all the glory. So, beloved, the application for us is that when we're called to be faithful in a society that is growing in in wickedness and in animosity, then here is the way we can be faithful like Micaiah. We rest in God's faithfulness to us. We rest in the truth of His Word. We rest in His loving kindness and we keep that before our eyes. And then we rest in His sovereign goodness and His sovereign plan and His sovereign will. Which means He does according to His own will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay the hand of the God that's on your side. He's for you. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. That's Ahab. Ahab's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as rivers of water, he turneth it, the heart, whithersoever he wills. That's where the wickedness is in Ahab's own nature, his own heart. But God providentially purposed, divinely permitted, and directed it like a channel of water that's directed to an end for the glory of the manifestation of His justice. Here's where you rejoice. Because you're part of the plan of mercy. God has rescued you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He's rescued you. He's pulled you out of the fire like a brand in the fire. He's plucked you out, put a song in your mouth and joy in your heart. And now the God that rules the world is on your side. And nothing can ever change His mind or keep Him from following you with His loving kindness all the days of your life. So what's the application? If you haven't trusted Him, trust Him. Trust Him. And be faithful. Because if you are, it's because He's faithful to you. Rest and trust in this sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your loving kindness and Your mercy and Your grace. We thank You, Lord. We see... The examples of the prophets like Micaiah that give us an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. We know that the patience and endurance that was displayed was owing to your grace and help to him. So that gives us encouragement, Lord. If we look to ourselves, then we have no hope. But we look to you. The God of the Old Testament is the same God today. And so we rest in your unchanging love to us. And we want to be more faithful to your word, more faithful uh, in our actions and our service to one another, more faithful in the kingdom of God. So work this out in our lives. And then, Lord, when circumstances seem to conspire against us, may we remember you're sitting on your throne and you say, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so we are silenced with a silent joy and rest in those times that you are ruling and reigning, and then not even the devils of hell or lying spirits are outside the scope of your divine sovereignty. We praise you, we acknowledge you, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.